0: All right, how many of you know who Perry Mason is, or was? That shows your age, right? Perry Mason was a well-known TV lawyer. He always won his cases, but he always won them at the end of the trial. Up to that time, it would appear that he would lose it because everything seemed to be against him. But right at the close, he always either brings in a secret witness, or an unknown witness, or some unknown truth that he has discovered, and it turns the case on its head, and he wins the case. Well, I believe that he must have gotten that strategy from the Apostle Paul. Because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does here, as he closes out what I call his um, closing argument to the church at Corinth. He turns everything on the head. All of a sudden, he's not defending himself anymore. In fact, he is now the one who is going to be on the offense and cause the others to be on the defense. And he's going to show that he was not really defending himself at all. But what he was doing was really being done for the maturing and the benefit of the people of God. And he turns everything upside down, as it were. And in the process, he reveals many truths that we as God's people need to know not only for pastors because that's one of the major emphasis not only for church leaders but also for the people of God and how they relate to one another how people relate to the pastors and so on so it's a tremendous passage is exciting i was blessed and i was challenged as i went through this passage again this coming week so god has a lot to say to us through this passage today the point is we have to listen to him And we have to be sure that we hear him speaking. So are you ready to listen? Are you ready to hear the word of God? All right. Take your Bibles. Now we will have the New Living Testament on the screen. But take your Bible and follow along because I want to be sure that you see this is coming from the word of God. All right. Very important here. Verse 11. That's where we stopped off last time. Notice what he says. You have made me act like a fool, boasting like this. You ought to be writing commendations for me. For I am not at all inferior to those super apostles, even though I am nothing at all. Now you have to understand where he's coming from here. Remember, he's been accused of being a false apostle by false apostles who have infiltrated the church at Corinth. And they have caused the people at Corinth that were led to Christ by Paul to accept some of the things that they're saying. And Paul said said last time, as we saw in the early early verses of this passage, that in order for him to present the truth, he had to boast in his qualifications the way that the false apostles boasted. You see, they boasted in human Criteria, human qualifications. Paul avoided that. Paul only wanted to boast into things that God had done in his life. And he always reminded people that he was the least of the apostles. Apostles born out of due time, as he said. So he never boasted. He was following the model of Jesus Christ, who never put himself above anyone else. But he says, in this case, I have to show you Corinthians, who have now being deluded by these false teachings, that actually I have just as much or even better qualifications than these false apostles. He said, but for me to do that, I'm going to act foolishly. He actually said, I'm acting as a carnal man in order to meet you where you are. In order to meet you where you are, because you seem to be only accepting those things that come from people who are carnally minded, who are not concerned with the word of God. I have to meet you where you are, but I'm a fool in doing it, But I have to use that strategy if you are going to understand what is happening at Corinth. So he says, you have made me act like a fool. You have caused me to do this by your own behavior. He says, you ought to be writing commendations for me. He's going to explain what he means by that in a moment. Because remember now, these people who had come in Corinth were boasting in the fact they had letters written to commend them to the ministry by people probably the apostles at Jerusalem. That's why some scholars wonder whether or not these super-apostles that are mentioned here really are not the false prophets or the false teachers at Corinth, but really they are the apostles in Jerusalem who gave these qualifications. Paul is saying, I don't need their backing in Galatians he brings that out very clearly. He says when he went to Jerusalem, he didn't see Paul. I'm sorry, he didn't see uh, uh Peter, he didn't see John. He did not get his gospel, he said, from man. He got his gospel from God. And that's what he's pointing out here. Alright? He says, uh, I do not want to boast in the same kind of qualifications these false teachers boast in. They boast in who they knew, who they could influence, relationship with other people. And that's what a lot of people do today. They don't stand on their own merit. They stand on whatever influence they have because they know certain people and they have relationships with certain people. And so they boast because of the people they know or the qualifications they might get from other people. Paul says, I'm not like that. I'm not looking for any approval for man whatsoever. I'm only looking for approval from God. I really, he's going to emphasize this, I'm not ministering just to get to please men. I am ministering to please God. That's where he's coming from here. And he says, of all people who should be writing commendations, you shouldn't be looking for commendations from outside of Corinth. You should be writing commendations because you know me. I have ministered among you. I have been there. He's going to explain that in a moment. So really, you should be the one who are writing commendations for me. You shouldn't be looking for me to be commended by people outside, because you know who I am, you know what I have done, and my ministry, the way I have have worked amongst you, the way I have ministered amongst you, that is enough to demonstrate that I am a genuine apostle, a true apostle of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. I am not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing at all. Then he goes on, verse 12. When I was with you, I certainly gave you proof that I am an apostle. For I patiently did many signs and wonders and miracles among you. Now this is why he said that they should be writing a recommendation for him. They are the results of his ministry as an apostle. They would not even have a church if it wasn't for him. They saw him, as I mentioned, at work. They saw the evidence of God's hand upon him, doing many signs and wonders and miracles. Now he brings this out because the writer to the Hebrews states very clearly that these are the signs of an apostle. Here's what the writer to Hebrews says in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself? And then delivered to us by those who heard him. That's the the disciples. And God confirmed the message. Now this is the reason for the signs and wonders. The confirmation that a person is an authentic messenger of God. God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit wherever he chose. Paul calls these the signs of an apostle. And what if he is saying now to the Corinthians, I have demonstrated these signs to you at Corinth. So if you want proof that I am an apostle, a genuine apostle, just look at what happened when I was there amongst you. Notice it says, God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. In other words, these were validations of the authenticity of a person being an apostle. Paul is saying then you of all people should have the proof of my apostleship. He's implying, did any of the man qualified so-called apostle demonstrate such powerful powerful signs among you? He's implying they didn't, but I did. So he said, How can you accept their word against mine in light of all of the miracles that I've done to demonstrate that I'm an apostle? How can you take their word above my word, which is backed by my actions? Now he says he patiently endured with them. That gives some idea again of the kinds of persecution and problems that he had at Corinth. It is sort of described in another church in Thessalonians. This is what he says in First Thessalonians chapter 1. Our gospel did not come to you in word only. Now what is this now? This is very important. We put a lot of emphasis on the word. But Paul says it's not only the word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of man we prove to be among you for your sake. So he's saying that our character, my character, the way I behaved, the things I did, the way I said it and so on, was also a way of proving and demonstrating that I was a man of God. You became imitators of us and of the Lord having received the word in much tribulation, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is the same thing that happened at Corinth, and Paul is reminding them of that. And so he's saying again, if anyone had proper proof that Paul was a genuine apostle, it was the Corinthians. Why? Because they experienced Paul's ministry firsthand, just as the Thessalonians had done. Now, we're going to have a lot of testimonies in the next Coming weeks, as we celebrate our fifth anniversary, and we looked at what God has done over the past five generations at Calvary Bible Church. And we're going to hear a lot of people giving testimony to the work and the ministry of brother and sister Weesh. And they're going to say it was because of his ministry, his preaching the word, it is because of his love, their love for us, their compassion, their tenderness, their, 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 their tender love demonstrated toward us. We knew he was a man of integrity. We knew he was a man of the word. We knew that he was a man of God. Paul is saying that should be enough to convince you of the fact that I am a true servant of Jesus Christ. We can hear testimonies like that, I'm sure. That's what Paul is saying here. His life, his message, and the miraculous signs of an apostle attested to the authenticity of his apostle. Now, We take a position that these signs and wonders are no longer needed as a way of demonstrating who is an apostle, because we only had the genuine apostles. People you hear call themselves apostles, please don't in any way associate them with the twelve. All right, there's just no relationship at all. And so, but what is needed now by men is first to be faithful to the word of God, second to be men of character. Man who do not manipulate the people of God. Man who do not fleece the people of God for money. Because this is what they were charging Paul about for as well. These were some of the things that demonstrated that a person was really a servant of God. Man of character, honesty, integrity. Not manipulating the people of God and not being concerned about filthy lucre. You see, it seems as though Paul's long-time presence with them caused them to take Paul for granted. He was something special when he first came. But the longer he stayed there, the more they seemed to resent him. You know what this saying is? Familiarity breeds contempt. And that's what probably happened with Paul. We experienced that, you know. Come first to a place and and everything is boom, 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 exciting and everything else. Then after a while, man, why don't man don't shut up? You see? It's amazing. Paul went through that same type of a situation here at Corinth as well. He goes on, verse 13. The only thing I failed to do, which I do in the other churches, was to become a financial burden to you. Please forgive me for this wrong. Now, Paul is being very sarcastic here. Paul says, it looks like the only thing that you could blame me for is not taking money from you. I did not ask you for money. I did not demand money. Now, as you read the epistle here, you'll find out that these other guys were. In fact, they twisted it to such an extent. They said what demonstrated that a person was a true apostle was if he was paid by the church. If he wasn't paid by the church, then he said, you're trying to manipulate, you're trying to deceive us and get money in other ways. In fact... As you read First and Second Corinthians, the charge seems to be that Paul was taking up this collection. You know what he wanted people to bring? Every Lord's Day and when he comes there would be no collection so he could take it to the saints of Jerusalem. They were subtly accusing him of trying to use his money for himself. That's why he went through so much pain to have other men to be with him when he took the money there. We looked at that before. But this is what is happening here. He says, now, it seems that if I had charged you for my services, you would have thought that I was really an apostle. Because that's what these men were saying. But Paul says, no. Well, if I failed to ask money of you, please forgive me. And of course, he's been very sarcastic here. He's rubbing his point in, as we would say today. He's poking fun at these people. Because he says elsewhere, we should not be in the ministry for the money. He calls that filthy lucre. He says, maybe you are angry with me because I did not charge you for my services as I usually do with other churches. Because he did receive funds from other churches. Because he's not saying it is wrong to take money as an honorarium or payment for service. He's not saying that. He's just saying that I chose not to do it amongst you for the same reason. He was trying to avoid this, but it seemed that it didn't work. Because they would charge him for being in the ministry for money. So this is really a focus, you would say, because it is evident in these epistles that these false teachers at Corinth were in fact milking and fleecing the Corinthians. Listen, all you have to do is turn on your TV today and you'll see a lot of these people who are milking and fleecing the people of God. All right? It's happening all the time. These people here in Corinth, these teachers who are actually claiming That the reason why Paul did not ask for remuneration was that he was not a true apostle. Implying that all true apostles are are paid by the churches they serve. This was a way of intimidating the Corinthians. Giving them, causing them to give more money. The way you can show that you believe I'm an apostle, give me more money. That's what was happening here. They They were charlatans. And we have many of them present today as well. So Paul is teasing, as I said. Maybe you feel less than other churches, he's implying, because I did not ask for monetary remuneration. Please forgive me for this. I did not mean to imply this, he's implying. I did it, as he will explain in a moment, not for your harm or for my benefit, but for your benefit and not for mine. That's why he says in verse 14, listen now, I am coming to you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you. I don't want what you have, I want you. Isn't that a great statement? After all, children don't provide for their parents, rather parents provide for their children. In other words, Paul is saying, I did not ask funds from you on neither the first or second time I came to Corinth. And guess what? I'm coming again a third time, and I'm going to do the same thing. I will not change my approach to ministry among you. I will not ask for or demand payment for my ministry. I'm going to do what I've been doing all along. Don't you see? I don't want anything from you. I want to give you what the Lord has freely given me as an apostle. That's what he's saying. And this should be the attitude of all of us as preachers as well. This is why I have a policy here at Calvary. When we invite someone to preach, and they come up and say, Now, Pastor, I'm coming, but in order for me to come, you have to give me $5,000, or you have to do this right away, say, Thank you, we don't need you here. Now, if they come and say, What you give us is that the Lord leads, that's a different story. But if they give a specified amount to me, that's a sign That they are selling the gifts that God has given them freely to give his people freely. Paul is doing the same thing here. He says, I do not want anything you have. I want to give you what God has given me as an apostle." And that's the principle we try to follow as well. He's saying, you are my children in the faith. I am your spiritual father. And the general rule is, as you know, parents provide for the children, not vice versa. So Paul is saying, you are my spiritual children. I don't want to take anything from you. I only want to give you what God has given me. He's also implying, by the way, that the false teachers are stealing from them because they are not a part of the family at Corinth. The strangers who have come in, as it were. And they are seeming to want to take the benefit of having Uh, brought the church along. Paul is saying, "Uh uh-uh. They're not your spiritual father. I am. You see? That's why he goes on later. In fact, earlier he talked about building on another person's ministry. And that is one of the things that's always been on my heart here. Because there's no way in the world that we want in any way to take credit for anything that has happened with Calvary to take it away in slightest form from the fantastic ministry that Mr. and Mrs. Weish accomplished here at Calvary Bible Church. We have to build on their ministry in a way that glorifies the Lord and and testifies the fact that what they did, they did because God had called them here as a man and a woman of God. In fact, pray for me as I prepare for the message next week. I started to think about it last night and the night before when I was lying down. And I decided I'm going to open my message with these words. I can tell you. I can wait for next week. All right. I can tell you. But remember this, and I'll tell you next week. Let's go on to verse 15. But you know, it's amazing how, it's amazing how much havoc and disunity that can be caused in a church by people who grumble, by people who are disgruntled for any reason at all, and how they easily fall prey to people who are not telling the truth just because they have a problem but a pastor or a pastors or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or whatever and so they're open to believing the lies of other people you see that's what's happening here at Corinth as well and Paul is going to chastise his children in the faith for being so vulnerable Allowing these false teachers to come in and teach them things that they knew were not true, verse fifteen, I will gladly spend myself on all I have for you, even though it seems that the more I love you, the less you love me. Isn't that amazing? Now I want you to realize this is the apostle Paul speaking. This is a man of God speaking, a man called of God. These are the writings of a these are the inspired writings of a man who is moved by the Spirit of God. This is an apostle sharing his heart. He says, I labor among you. I do all of these things. And he's already told us about all the persecution and all of the difficulties he faced, the calamities he faced, and everything else. And he says, I want you to realize I do this that I, because I love you. But it seems that the more problems I get into for you, the more you despise me the more you reject me. That's something, isn't it? I wonder how Paul really felt here. He's saying, I am still willing and ready to give my life and wealth for you, even though it appears that the more I show my love for you by my unselfish actions toward you, the more you seem to reject and to despise me. Now he may be thinking of Jesus of whom he once said, though you may be unfaithful, Yet I will remain faithful to you. That's what Paul is saying here. You might reject me, but I'm not going to reject you. You might be unfaithful to me, but I'm not going to be unfaithful to my calling of God in ministering to you. I will love you and expand myself to you regardless of what you, how you may treat me. Now that's really something, isn't it? That's why when you hear about pastors who get up and leave a church because they don't like the way that people treated them. You see, you have to question that, you know, what are they there for? Are they there because they wanted to be treated good or they wanted to minister the word of God to mature the people? You're going to see that Paul's purpose for his ministry was to mature the people of God, not to win their favor. And he's going to say that here. He's going to, as he goes on, he says, now, if you don't obey me this third time, you're in trouble. He's going to say, I've told you how to behave And these, for two times now, I've written two letters. In fact, I've written three letters. One of them we don't have. But he says, now I'm going to come again. And when I come, I'm not going to be as nice as I was before. So you might have a whole different attitude towards me again. But let's go on. Look at verse uh, 16. Some of you admit I was not a burden to you. But others still think I was sneaky. And took advantage of you by trickery. But how did I do this? Did any of the men I sent to you take advantage of you? So he now challenges those who accuse him of being in the ministry for the money. And that he was just using trickery and manipulation to get a large offering of the Jerusalem saints that he could keep for himself. At least some of it. So he challenges them. Show me proof that I was deceitful. Did any of my associates ever trick you? Remember, he sent, uh, he, he sent uh, Titus and a couple of other brethren ahead of him to get things ready. And he said, now look at when these men were you. How did they behave? Didn't they show integrity? Notice verse 18. When I urged Titus to visit you and send out other brethren with him, did Titus take advantage of you? No, for we have the same spirit and walk in each other's steps doing Things the same way. He says, in other words, all of my associates, we act, talk, behave the same way. You have, you can find nothing wrong in our life. We have done nothing in any way to give you the idea that we're trying to steal from you or to manipulate us, manipulate you. We were men of godly character. And beloved, that's what you have to look for today. Not only for those who have a charisma in speaking, but their character. Look at their fruit. Look at their lifestyle. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, none of these men took advantage of you the way the false teachers are doing. My associates and I live and serve in the same way, with the same goal, the same integrity. We are all alike. We are all alike. That's what he says. And that's how it should be even here at Calvary Bible Church for those of us. We, have a we serve on a plurality of leaders basis here. We have a group of men. We should have the same goal in mind. We should have the same purpose in mind. And we should be using the same strategy. And we should be loving you the same way. There should be no division. That's why you need to pray for us sometime, Because sometimes working with a tall person who doesn't like coal is very difficult. All right? Verse nineteen. Perhaps you think we're saying these things just to defend ourselves. Now this, where Paul turns the tide here, this where he twists everything around. Perhaps you think we're saying these things just to defend ourselves. No, we tell you this as Christ's servants, and with and with God as our witness. Everything we do, dear friends, is to strengthen automatic. Who are you? So Paul is now going to explain why he used the strategy he did while he was at Corinth and while he's using the strategy right now. He's going to be telling that everything I did, I did for one reason. That was to mature you so that God could be glorified in your life. He's saying, in effect... So you think I have been saying what I have been saying and using the strategy I was using to defend myself. But that's not the case at all, Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I was making myself a fool for your sake in order to mature you in the faith. And Paul gives us then, in this one statement, in fact, two of them here, the purpose, the end purpose for his ministry. Not only among the Corinthians, but throughout the churches. And it was to lead them... To Christian maturity. This was the end purpose of his ministry in the, and the strategy that he used throughout his life. This is why he makes the same bold declaration to this end in Philippians 1. Notice what he says in verses 28 and 29 of Philippians 1. So we tell others about Christ. The King James says we proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone, with all the wisdom God has given us. And Paul was using divine wisdom when he's acting like a fool and talking to the Corinthians. We want to present them to God perfect or mature in their relationship to Christ. Notice we say, that's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. This gives us the end purpose for the ministry of the Apostle Paul and why he placed Himself at such great, um, in such great danger and difficulties to get the word of God out. He wanted to see the people of God mature in their faith. That's my objective as well. If you look at your bulletin we've had here for years, you will see that's the purpose for my ministry. My ministry is to build on that which Pastor and Sister has done. They were an evangelistically trust people. They won many people to Christ. So what are we here to do? To try to build those up in Christ to lead them to Christian maturity. That's our focus. That's our emphasis. That's what Paul is doing here. Everything Paul did was done with his end-purpose mind to bring believers to maturity in Christ. As I said, this has been explaining to you for the past 20 years if you just look. By the way, next Sunday, next Lord's Day, will mark the 20 years of ministry here for me as well. Same time we celebrate the 50 years of Calvary Bible Church. I mark 20 years of being here. Same day. Isn't that something? All right. So if you look at the bulletin, thank you. If you look at the bulletin, you'll see that's our purpose. Everything we do, although we don't explain it all the time, has that purpose in mind. To lead you to Christian maturity. To lead you to become a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying here, That's how he struggles so hard, but depending on Christ's mighty power that works within him. And we do the same thing, depending upon the power of God to work in and through us. And this past year has been really an experience for me in this area. But then Paul gives him a warning in verse 20. I am afraid that when I come, I won't like what I find. And you won't like my response. Now you see he's getting real strong here. I'm afraid that I will find quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorderly behavior. Now Paul is naming the sins of the Corinthians. He talked about this in chapter in the first epistle. He talking about it again. He says, it looks like many of you have not changed. The way things look now, he's saying, then, unless you repent of your carnality, and then he lists these specific sins, all of these, of course, are reflective of the works of the flesh. Hurling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorderly behavior. He dealt with all of these in his first and second visits. But it appears as though they did not respond to his godly and loving instructions to repent during this time. Now, he says... It looks like I will have to use my authority as an apostle apostle to get things right. You see, they were accusing him that he did not have the authority as an apostle. Paul says, well, I didn't use it when I was with you. I did not really use my authority. I ministered to you in love and compassion, and patience, perseverance. But now it looks like that didn't work. When I come, I am going to use my authority as an apostle, he's saying here. I refrain from using this authority to the fullest in the first and second visits. But it looks like I have no other recourse now to use my authority unless you repent. And notice what he says in verse 21. Yes, I am afraid that when I come again, God will humble me in your presence. And I will be grieved because many of you have not given up your old sins. You have not repented of your impurity. Your sexual immorality and eagerness for lustful pleasure. Paul says, I'm saddened to him, grieved over this. I've preached my heart out to you. I've loved you. I've done so many things for you. I've ministered the word of God. I've warned you. But you have not listened. You've not responded. Isn't that amazing? See now, in one sense, that makes me feel good. Because I did not have the power or the authority of the apostle Paul. People didn't listen to him. So when you all don't listen to me, I don't feel that bad. All right? That's the strategy that Paul is using here. Now, when he says that God will humble him, he means that we'll have to deal with them in a severe discipline rather than in loving and tender rebuke as he had done in the past. He preferred to work from the basis of loving instruction rather than harsh discipline. But he says if you don't listen to the instruction, then you have to be disciplined. Look at verse 1 now, chapter 13. He's going to show how he laid the foundation now to be severe. This is the third time I am coming to visit you. And as the scriptures say, the facts of every case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have already warned those who had been sinning when I was there on my second visit. Now I again warn them and all others, just as they did before. That the next time, I will not spare them. So he is saying now, I am doing what the scripture says. I'm going to give you two times to repent. If you don't, don't, the third time, you'll be disciplined. He has had his witnesses. He sent other associates, Titus and others there, to see how they were doing. They did not respond. The Corinthians did not listen. So now, he says, only discipline is left. And so he followed the biblical way of doing things. Look at verse 3. I will give you all the proof you want that Christ speaks through me. Paul is getting, I mean, Paul is really using strategy. He says, You wanted proof that I am an apostle. You said you didn't see it when I did all these miracles among you. But when I come back now, this third time, and I demonstrate my authority to discipline you, you're going to have proof. But you're not going to want the proof. You're not going to like the proof that you get. This proof is going to be harsh. It's going to be the proof to discipline in the power of the Spirit of God and in the spirit of Christ, because I am a true apostle. Christ, he says, is not weak when he deals with you. He is powerful among you. What he is saying here is that what he will be doing, he'll be doing in the power of Jesus Christ. Although it's going to be harsh, he's going to be doing it in the power of Jesus Christ. He will give the proof they were looking for concerning his apostolic authority by administering discipline in the power of Jesus Christ. He says Christ will demonstrate his power through him in this fashion. Now, of course, he explained this very truth in the first epistle. You remember, there was a man in the assembly who was living with his father's ex-wife or whatever. You remember that? And they would not discipline him. And then Paul wrote them and gave them instructions how to do it. Notice how he says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. For I on my part, though absent in body, because he wasn't there, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. And notice, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, notice, with the power of our Lord Jesus. You see that? He is there in spirit, but within the power of the Holy Spirit. I have decided in the power of the Holy Spirit to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul is saying, now listen, looks like i got to do the same thing here, to demonstrate my power, the power of Jesus Christ in me by His Spirit. But that power is going to be demonstrated in discipline if you do not repent. If you do not turn away from your sin. And so this is a warning to all of us, beloved. The many things that we as individual believers, members of Calvary Bible Church, may be doing that we know are sinful. It's wrong. And God has spoken to us again and again. But we have not changed. You see, that leaves us open to God's harsh judgment then. For instance, Paul says to those who break bread, you come out to church regularly, you come and you break bread, you remember the Lord, observe the Lord's table, and then some of you die because you do it in a way that is not in keeping with your spiritual condition. Some are weak, some are sick, and what? Others have died, he's taken away. That's harsh judgment. Man didn't do that. God did it. But it's a warning to us. God reaches out to us first in love and in compassion. If we don't respond, it gets a little more difficult. And finally, he does things that we or the church cannot do. He administers judgment. It goes like this. If you don't judge yourself, that's what he says in 1 Corinthians And if the church don't judge you because of your sin, and you don't turn away, God himself will step in, and he will bring the judgment. No matter how you do it, when the people of God sin, they will not get away from it, from the discipline. Yes, the judgment for it is gone, but not the discipline. God will do it. Paul is saying then, I will do the same thing when I come the third time. And the power of Jesus Christ will be my authority. In other words, he is exercising his apostolic authority by administering discipline for unrepentant sin. Christ is working in and through him in that fashion. That's why he says in verse 4 now, although he, Jesus, was crucified in weakness, he now lives by the power of God. We too are weak, just as Christ was. But when we deal with you, we will be alive with him. And we'll have God's power. This is an amazing statement. He says, when I deal with you in discipline, I'm going to be dealing with you with the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. He is patterning his ministry after the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered. He was a man of sorrows. He suffered. He died. But he was raised again in the power of the Spirit of God. And now lives in that power. Paul says, that's exactly how my life is going on. My ministry is going on. I do a lot of things that cause humiliation in my life. That causes me to look small. People think I am a fool for Christ. And I am. But I have a strategy. I, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's a method to my madness, he's saying. I am doing this because I know there's going to be glory to follow. And he's patterning in his life after that of Jesus Christ. I might demonstrate my weaknesses... But that's only a way of demonstrating the power of Jesus Christ in my life. He says, our Lord's, this is how it looks. He says, our Lord's first coming was in weakness. His resurrection was in power. His second coming will be vastly different from his first coming. And so it will be with Paul's third visit. His first and second visit was in weakness. But when he comes the third time, when he comes again... It will be in power. And if they really want to see the power and strength of an apostle, they will see it, but they will not like it. You see, the, the Corinthians, Paul is saying, must not be deceived by his reluctance to take strong action against him that he did not do in his previous visits. They should expect this second visit, or rather this third visit, to be very different if they did not turn away from their sin. And now he closes his second epistle with this challenge. Actually, three challenges. The first challenge is that Paul readers must test themselves to see whether they are in the faith. Now this is another twist. This is the Perry Mason idea. They were charging that Paul was not a genuine apostle. Paul well, says, "Now, hey, now, hey, come on! Now, if you're going to judge me, you better begin by judging to see if you are a genuine Christian. Because what he's saying this now, and he's going to explain this in the next verse, he's going to say that if you are, if I am not a genuine apostle, then you are not a genuine Christian because your faith was based upon my message. Understand that? that so he turns everything on his head now again. You see, he turns it around." So Paul challenges the Corinthians to test themselves to learn whether they are truly saved. Notice verse 5. Examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. And notice, surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. He says, now look at your own life. Is Jesus Christ in your life? Is He is in your midst? If you acknowledge that, then you also by implication acknowledge that my apostleship is genuine. Uh, If not, then both of us are false. I am a false prophet, false prophet, and you are not a believer at all. We go together in this. Now, several conclusions can be drawn from this challenge in verse five. First, it is good for this question to be raised by every church member or professing Christian to seriously consider it. Are you really in the faith? Is Christ in your life? Now, those who are saved will not be harmed by examining themselves. And they might even find the exercise helpful to give them the assurance of the fact that they are born again. Those who are not Christians will certainly not be led astray by encouraging them to evaluate your spiritual condition. So we give you the same challenge. Examine your life. Are you in the faith? Does your life demonstrate Christ-likeness? Now, this challenge also assumes that some members who profess to be born again Believers are not born-again believers. Or he wouldn't ask them to do it. So there are people who profess to be believers who are not. So Paul is challenging us to examine ourselves. So it's very apparent that some of the Corinthians fell into this category. the, The way they were questioning his apostolic authority. But Paul's words describe them in such a way that we must wonder if they were saved at all, at all. Because look at all of the things they were doing. Some were marrying unsaved people. Some were taking brothers, suing the brothers in order to get money back from them or whatever, rather than having it dealt with in the church. Some were involved in sexual immorality, persisting in it. Some were uh, attending pagan services. Some were coming to the Lord's Supper in a way they shouldn't. Some were not using or misusing the spiritual gifts. We can go on and on. All of these sins cause Paul to say, some of you better question yourself to see whether or not you be in the faith. Now, the third thing we need to look at from this is, it is possible to test ourselves regarding our salvation and know that we're saved. If Paul didn't think that it was possible for us to test and to know, he wouldn't have instructed us to do it. So there are ways of knowing whether or not you're a Christian. Now unfortunately, and I tried to go to this text again and again, Paul doesn't tell us what those qualifications are. The implication is you know. You know. You know before God. All right? but he says there's a way of knowing that now of course John deals with this in his first epistle he says these things have I written unto you uh, that you may know that you have eternal life and this life is in his son right he who has the son has life he who does not have the son does not have life right so Paul is saying, actually, only you really know whether or not you have the Son. I don't. It's only between you and God. You could tell me all kinds of things. You can show me all kinds of things. Just like people who perform miracles, and yet at the end, Jesus says, Depart from me, I don't know you. You could tell me all kinds of things. I cannot tell that anyone is a Christian. Only that person themselves can tell that in the final analysis. We can give you all kind of illustrations. You just heard last year, I think or year before, this man who was the head of the largest evangelical organization in the United States came out saying that he was a homosexual. The head of the evangelical largest evangelical organization in the world, leading it for years, came out to say that he was a homosexual, now he was a pastor, and all of that, but nobody nobody imagined that he would be involved in things like that and we could go on and on and on. Look at the other preacher who all of a sudden turned he led its big huge church, and now he came out to teach us no such thing as hell, right, and he doesn't believe in it and all that kind of a thing, showing that his profession of faith in the first place wasn't right. But yet he led a church that had thousands of people following him. And people were given money. And I know people from the Bahamas who were sending the money. You see? Now he heads up one of the largest homosexual churches anywhere. In fact, anybody. Without any kind of standards or anything going on. You see? The point is this. Paul is saying that it's only you and God who knows if you're really saved. Examine yourself. You could lie to me. You could even lie to this intellectual man over here. That's a foul But you cannot lie to God. Right? So Paul says, examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. Alright, um, let me end up with this. Paul says in verse 13, Verse 7 rather, chapter 13. We pray, this is this conclusion now, to God. Now he's praying for the things he's commanded, by the way. We pray to God that you will do what is, you will not do what is wrong by refusing our correction. Now he commanded them to repent, but now he's praying that they will. I hope we don't need to demonstrate our authority when we arrive. Do the right thing before we come even if that makes it look as though we have failed to demonstrate our authority. He says, even if I don't have the opportunity to demonstrate the power of Christ by exercising my uh, discipline in your life, turn to Christ. I would before you do that, then for me to have to demonstrate my power as an apostle by disciplining you. Verse 8, for we cannot oppose the truth, but must always stand for the truth. We are glad to seem weak if it helps show that you are actually strong. We pray that you will become mature. That's his prayer. It seems as though Paul is saying, I am an apostle, I proclaim the truth, and I contend for the truth. I am advocate for the truth, I cannot work against that truth by not disciplining you. I furthered the truth not only by proclaiming it, but by praying also For it's outworking in your lives so that you might become mature. And then he goes on, he says, I am writing this to you before I come, hoping that I won't need to deal severely with you when I come. For I want to use the authority of the Lord, I want to use the authority the Lord has given me to mature you, not to tear you down. This is a tremendous statement here. Paul is saying, listen, I love you, I do not want to exercise discipline, but I want you to be mature. If you were to repent, I wouldn't have to use discipline. You would be working towards maturity if you repent of your sin, so I do not have to discipline you. I want to build you up, he says, not tear you down. Now, so he's praying that he be made complete or be made pure. And then he says... Dear brothers and sisters, I close my letter with these last words. Now here are commands. These are imperatives. Be joyful. In spite of the threat of my discipline, be joyful. If you repent, you'll mature. If you don't, you'll be disciplined, then you'll mature. But be joyful in the Lord. Now we're not, we have a lot to be joyful for, isn't that right? We should be joyful not only for our salvation, but the fact today that, that the... what that guy name? Isaac. God is in Jacob. Isaac is gone. Isaac has passed us by. Be joyful. Be joyful in the Lord. Let's be joyful as we approach the celebration of the 50th year anniversary. Because the focus is going to be on praise. Praise to what God has done, not what man has done or is doing. But what God has done and is going. Be joyful, he says. Notice, grow to maturity. That's the command. You need, by the way, one mark that you're a Christian, is if you're maturing. If you're not maturing, if you're not growing spiritually, you've got to check to see if you really have the life of God in you. Because the life of God always produces fruit, always grows. So if there's no growth in your life spiritually, you have to examine to see whether you have the life in the first place. Then encourage one another. We need to do that more and more, the, the writer of the Hebrews says, especially as we see the day approaching. We need encouragement. That's why I thank God for those who occasionally call me on the phone to encourage me concerning my health and so on. Live in harmony and peace. This is what was lacking in the church. There was all kinds of confusing and chaos in the church. There was no harmony, there was no unity, there was no peace. Then he says, if you do these, then the God of love and peace will be with you. He's implying that right now, this God of love is not with you in the sense of ministering and working in your life. Because of your sin. Again, all of these are commands. They're not mere suggestions, not even just exhortations. We are commanded to be joyful. We are commanded to grow to maturity. We are commanded to encourage one another. We are commanded to live in harmony and peace if we are to experience the peace of God itself and enjoy his love. By the way, those were the things that were missing in Corinth. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 was written. To demonstrate what love is and how we should love. And peace as well. So, um, he then ends up, finally he says, these commands are linked to a promise for those who obey him. That's that the God of peace will be with you. The commands are linked to a promise. Then he closes out. Greet each other, King James says what? With a holy kiss. This version says, with Christian love, because that's what the holy kiss demonstrates. Someone once asked me, Pastor Lee, and this is an illustration now, so this may happen, have happened or not. Someone asked me, Pastor Lee, what's the difference between a holy kiss and a Hollywood kiss? What's the difference between a holy kiss and a Hollywood kiss? How would you answer that? Three minutes. Think about that for a while. All right? Greet each other with Christian love. That's what he means with a holy kiss. Greet one another with Christian love. All of God's people here send you their greetings. And notice how he ends up. And the love, and the peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. And as I mentioned, this is what they needed at Corinth. They needed chapter 13. Uh, they needed the peace, because when you read, the first three chapters of First Corinthians, there was no peace. There was people who had, there were cliques. Christians were uh, putting one preacher against the other. There were all kinds of things that were going on. There was no love and no peace. But he's saying this is the way to do it. Be joyful, grow to maturity, encourage one another, live in harmony and peace. Repent of the sins that you know that you are involved in right now. So, to avoid the discipline of God. That's what Paul's saying here. So, the closing application is this. Are you in the faith? Are you in the faith? This is a self-test that only you can truthfully answer. I cannot answer this for you. Only you can. Now, if you are in the faith, are you allowing Christ, through his Holy Spirit, to live that faith out in your life. And as I said, a mark of maturity, a mark of, a mark of being in Christ is the fact that you are growing in Christ. That is a sure telltale sign that you are a believer. Are you growing to be more Christ-like every day? Sila. Think and act on these things. Father, thank you for your word. Though feebly presented, we know it is still the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. And we know that you will accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it forth today. And in that we rest. And all of God's people said, Amen.